You are now listening to The Black Spark. The Bonus Show. Welcome to The Black Spark. Welcome to The Black Spark. I'm your host, Nia. And I am your host, Adai. And today we have the pleasure of doing a wonderful bonus show with the wonderful comedian, author, Chloe Hilliard. Hello. Welcome to the party. (laughs) Fellow New Yorker, fellow New Yorker. What's up? What's up? What's up? Come through. We've been pre-gaming. We pre-gamed before this. They missed so much. That's the exclusive. Yes, right? So much of New York has happened since we've been yes, there. Yes, oh my God. Yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a brief intro into who and what you are, what you do. Yes. Uh, my name is Chloe Hilliard. I am a television writer and producer, comedian, book author, former journalist. And it's, yeah, it's interesting seeing all of that. And it, it makes me realize how old I am oh. <laughs> yes. and and how much I've accomplished because you don't really think about it. Like when you say your bio, you it's now when I hear it, it, it sounds like chunks of time. Like mm. it's like those, you know, I just went through my 20s, my 30s. Now I'm in my 40s. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I've I've had like a good range. And it also makes me realize that everything that I've done ha- has led me to this moment right here, even talking with you two on the Black Spark. It's like everything leads you to a moment. And so it's like, first, it's January. It's reflective. You know, I yeah. just had a birthday. Yeah. You know, you're oh, in your you feelings when you're like, yeah, I'm a Capricorn. So it's just like all of that top of the year energy that yeah. you just received in that answer. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, like happy it. belated birthday. Our yeah. daughter just had Thank a birthday. You. And I had a birthday in December, so. Are you a, a Capricorn? No, unfortunately, oh. I'm a crazy Sagittarius. <laughs> okay, okay. So listen, me and your daughter are kindred spirits. So. Yes. Tell us about your book, Fuck Your Diet. <laughs> yeah. Love okay. the title. I love the title. When I read that, I was like, we gonna win that? Yeah. Listen, I love the title too, but let me tell you something. This is my advice. If anybody is writing a book and you have a curse word in the title, do not if unless your your book publisher has money and they don't mind get skirting around it but i had such a hard time uh posting ads for it on like facebook and instagram because of language mm-hmm. and like lady legit would have a beheading and a post right after mine but the <laughs> f word was so offensive to oh. their like guidelines <sighs> and so i know also when people hear that title they think that i'm saying don't diet eat whatever you want but really it's a it's a hodgepodge of that kind of mentality but also understanding like what the food industry does to diet culture and how mm. that influences our self-esteem yes. and our waistlines and our bank accounts because we're always trying to find a scheme to look better feel better and fit into this like false identity of like what is healthy in america and it's just capitalism. And so being a journalist at heart, I incorporate a lot of research facts, like statistical things, and pair them with my life experience at the time. So like I'm a child of the 80s and President Ronald Reagan was pretty much like low key to first Trump. And he, you know, high key and so he came in with reaganomics and wanting to cut the school lunch budget and when he did that he kind of relaxed a lot of the restrictions that they had on the quality control and Uh so instead of a burger being 80 percent beef it could be 50 percent beef because he would fill you know not he but now the people who created it could fill it with filler and make a bigger profit margin because they were cutting school lunch budgets like federally funding these things and And so that kind of opened 
Yeah, and giving it to our children. And so if you look at the childhood obesity rate, you can see it skyrocketing in the 80s and it's never really kind of gone down. And so now when you look at pictures of, you know, your parents or grandparents in the 60s and the 70s and everybody's skinny. And then when you get to the 80s and the 90s, everybody's a little chunk star is because of things that actually were put into our food or allowed in our food that we had no say over. And so me as a kid realizing that, I'm eating what everybody else is eating, but I'm getting big. And then, you know, I'm not necessarily the most active because I grew up in the 80s in New York City where it was still really for real dangerous. And mm-hmm. you really for real would have to like kick through crack vials down the street. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, like, and this is when they still used to do chalk outlines of dead bodies. You remember yes. that? Like, yes, ma'am. Yes. So um, it was it was a lot of things that influenced my ability to be healthy. And I think that's something that people still deal with, even though it's a first world country and not just black and brown people in poor communities like middle white Americans eat like shit and yes. they are suffering from it. And that's why a lot of them are mad and storming the Capitol because their diets are trash. No, <laughs> no I'm serious. True. I know you're serious. Nutritional deficiency. Yes. Because I, I did see a lot of people huffing and puffing on their way walking up. Yes. The thing is like you, you, you know how you feel when you overindulge and you feel like crap and your attitude is nasty and you don't want to be active. Now imagine if you eat that every day and you feel like you don't, you're no longer associating your bad attitude to your diet. It's just your life. Mm-hmm. And so you can't really differentiate. And then when you do try to eat better, you know, we have to deal with the social anxiety of like not fitting in with your social circle anymore because everybody drinks and eat wings. Like there's so many things that <laughs> ways in which food tie into our lives. And for me, being a a young woman who was always overweight and like, you know, I call myself like an OG fat girl because like (laughs) I was a big girl when everybody was still skinny and I had to deal with the brunt of like being bullied and harassed. And it made me have a thicker skin, which is probably why I ended up eventually becoming a comedian because I had to find a way to like make light of the trauma in my life. And my book really, I I say this like towards the end of the book, but I say like, I wrote this really for myself because Mm. I had to let myself go of all the things that I thought were my fault. I thought it was my fault that I got fat at six. I thought it was my fault that I wasn't able to, you know, have like a fair and balanced like teen dating romance because the truth of the matter is a lot of the things that I've dealt with as a child with my my self-esteem and my lack of uh, or lack thereof allowed me to put myself in positions where people didn't treat me right. And then that trickles into adulthood. And then it trickles into like advocating for yourself in the workplace and how to maneuver all of those things. And so I really had to like lay a lot of those things bare in my book because I wanted to not just tell my story, but tell a story that was relatable to other people and also provide information so that they can see how the parallels are, regardless of if you consider yourself fat, skinny, rich, poor, whatever race. It's like we all as a society are are victims of bad eating, capitalism, uh, food deserts, food swamps, like everything, it impacts all of us. And once we realize that we can kind of like um, change the conversation of how we treat people who have bigger bodies, because you can see there's a lot of factors and it's not just you don't have self-control. Listen, I need a church fan Cause for this, because this shit preaching. Because I'm just seeing him like, this is great. <laughs> I don't want to ask anything. I don't want to know. Listen. I just want to keep talking. Good <laughs> <Yeah>, Lord. <yeah. laughs> you just 
gave a whole service. Wow. <laughs> I love it. It's true, though, when so I think true. back to um, a lot of overweight people, particularly black and brown women that I know, it definitely does translate into loving relationships mm-hmm. or uh, what actually tend to be abusive relationships mm-hmm. when we really look at it. Oh, I talk about that, too. And, I, and, that's, and so that's why, like, fuck your diet is, like, the sensationalist. They're like, ooh, what is that to get you pick it up, to pick up the book? But I also realized that the title of the book made people think, well, I don't have a weight issue, so it's not about me, or I don't mind diet, so it's not about me. But really, you know, the whole full title is, like, fuck your diet and other things my thighs tell me, and it's a collection of essays. And I definitely talk about, you know, the chapter 15 is all about sex, being, you know, being a big girl and the things in which we do to, like, maneuver and to hide our bodies, having the lights off, doing, you know, posing a certain way and... Mm. You know, the way in which we and I, you know, I can't say we, but the way in which I would engage with in sex or sexual relationships because I wanted a form of intimacy because I was deprived of intimacy because I wasn't confident in myself. So Mm -hmm. I kind of took what I could get. And Mm -hmm. then you end up in these dysfunctional situationships where you're pining after someone who who says that they care about you, but they don't care about you publicly because aesthetically you aren't pleasing Mm. and you don't fit the norm. And so you end up, you know, going into this like abusive cycle because you constantly get this little carrot dangled in front of your face and think that Miss may be the one. And then, you know, mm-hmm. and so that was a lot of like my teen years and my 20s. And all of these things, like when you think back to it, it was like, damn, it was just because I was a big girl and I just, I was, you know, it, it's, it kind of spun out of control. And mm-hmm. so it was really helpful to like, talk about those things because I don't think people even consider how all of that stuff affects larger body people. For sure. True. For sure. True. Well, I mean, my second question was <laughs> give us a history of your body image and food. I feel like I you touched a, a lot around it, but if there's any specific story or thing you want to say about that. About like my body image when it comes to eating food. Or you know, when I would... you were growing up. How did that? Yeah. Yeah. So I tell the story in the book and I have to preface by saying that my mother's an amazing woman. I love her with all, all my heart. Uh Um, But, but, you know, this was the eighties, this was like 88, 89. And, you know, my mom was the sixties and seventies generation. So they were slim. Everybody was a size zero two and they wore bell bot, like men and women wore bell bot, like everybody was skinny. And so she was skinny, she was tiny. And all of a sudden her daughter was like starting to blow up and she didn't know what to do. So she put me on a diet at like age 11 and she sent me to school with slim fast in a can and she would wrap it in a Reynolds wrap so that the other kids wouldn't know what I was drinking. But of course kids are smart and it's like, like, like how'd you get a milkshake for lunch like what's going on in your house like y'all got like canned presses in your bathroom like how you coming to school with a metal milkshake and so two plus two equals oh she's drinking slim fast and that was just like the start of it but that was truly her being like at her wits end because she didn't know what to do to help her child fit in Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't a punishment it wasn't that chloe and it wasn't even that i was eating a lot of food Mm -hmm. but and this is why universal health care is so important. I learned much later in life that I was allergic to a lot of the things that my family ate all the time, right? For some reason, for some reason, my parents love pumpernickel bread. Don't ask me why. <laughs> it's a bread, it's, it's brown bread. It doesn't taste like anything, but I don't know why. I guess they wanted to be bougie and didn't want to do wonder no more. So they was like, pumpernickel is for us. It's, and, it's for- <laughs> look, it looks like us. 
Well, I don't know why, but they love pumpernickel bread. Every sandwich I had from child, from age zero to like thirteen, pumpernickel bread. <laughs> I my body cannot process pumpernickel bread, but I don't know that. So every time I'm eating it, my body gets inflamed, even as a child, and I don't know. So these are things scientifically that we don't even talk about, yeah. you know. And if you do, if you do something which I've done, which is like eat for your blood type, then it tells you the types of foods that your body can process, and so they categorize it as like hostile to your body, neutral, or like positive for your body. And a lot of things that I ate growing up. Like red meat, I didn't really like red meat growing up, and I kind of stopped it when I was like 12, 13. I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do it. And I didn't eat red meat for like almost like 10 years. And my body really can't eat processed red meat. So when I would feel lethargic after dinner as a child, I didn't know that was my body saying, uh, we don't really like red meat. So I'd be like, oh, I don't feel good. I want to lay down. I want to take a nap. Now it's like, oh, you ate a lot and you lazy, mm -hmm. you know? And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that we get labeled that our body is trying to tell us, but we don't really educate ourselves about the body, how it pertains to food and how everybody's individual body is completely different. And so that's a more of a science conversation and a food education conversation that we don't have. Because if you grow up in a community or a family where you don't have the funds for everybody to have their own specific dinner, yeah. You get in a pork chop. Everybody getting pork chops. You know, so it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have that struggle now. We like, we could give y'all each three different things and then we could each actually have our own meal. But I ain't trying to do that. No. So everybody get yeah. a pork chop. No, I'm just no, 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 no. We all do pork chops. But, <laughs> but we definitely, listen. Listen, Linda. Listen, Linda. Okay. Are you not listening? Oh my goodness! Yeah, and that's the thing. Resources, like it's like, mm -hmm. and if you're at with limited resources, I'm I'm used to even though we are not um, deprived, I still have. Uh, you gotta eat every last thing. We gonna scra scavenge the kitchen, figure something out to eat, and we all gonna eat that thing. Listen, mm -hmm. that's why like, my mind works. And he'd be like, "Yeah, I'm ordering something." Yep, because he'd be, <laughs> he'd be like, "You want something? Look, like, I'm ordering something." What you making for dinner? I'm like, "Did you look in the cabinets?" There's I'm like, like, did you look in the cabinets? Because I could throw something together. <laughs> and he will. He'd be like, oh, here's a can of garbanzo beans and some honey and some crackers. Uh. Let's do it. <laughs> now, that sounds that sound like ghetto chop. That sounds like ghetto chop. <laughs> <We're> like, oh. <laughs> He's never done that. But, like, that's the vibes. That's the vibes. Yeah, yeah. Make the best of what we got. Even though we say ordering. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, but yes, That's no, I agree. Story. I agree with you. I, I'm loving what you're saying, <laughs> and people don't even know about. Uh, you, I mean, you, you could end up with celiacs. You could have been one of those folks. Well, who, now but, I do. I actually do have a, a gluten intolerance, and I was talking to a doctor, and he was saying how um, most people will end up developing it because it's basically inflammation in the body, and at a certain point, your body can't like turn it over anymore. Yeah. And so I, I remember like ten years ago, I would eat pizza and I would have heartburn, and I just thought. My dumb ass. I just thought like the crust was still working its way down. I was like, ooh, that's some hard ass crust. I know exactly the feeling that you're talking about. You're like, ooh, let me get something to drink. Goodness, it's taking a yeah. long time for this to go down. Yeah. And that and that was my body being like, no, dumb dumb. Um, you can't process this food. And so I've had I definitely had like some health. Uh, I had like a health scare too early mm. on that made me be like, I need to like detox. And so yes. I'm grateful that I always relied on detox. And even in the, even in my early twenties, I would be like, I'm going on a detox. And that kind of let me know that my body responds 
very, you know, volatile to certain things. Like mm-hmm. when I would extract it from my diet and go back and be like, oh, bitch, you can't drink milk no more. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. note it, you know, like, mm-hmm. so, but a lot of people, even when I would do my detoxes, the scrutiny that I would get mm-hmm. from my friends and family is like, oh, you think, you know, oh, mm-hmm. you think you're special? Oh, you think you're better? Or you, you know, and it's like, no, I just want to like feel good. Yeah. I just want to know why I don't feel good. Yeah. But a lot of times people, they, especially, you know, in the hood, in the Black community, they feel like, oh, you're trying to make yourself special by mm-hmm. going on a detox. You're trying to show that you can do something that we can't do or you think you have to do this other thing. And it's like, no, I feel like taking care of your health or just checking in on yourself shouldn't be seen as like an act of defiance against right. the community. It's just what I need to do for myself. And I'm so glad that more people are like, having these conversations, more people are doing these things. And don't get me wrong, just because I've detoxed and I've been vegan, pescatarian, everything under the sun, I, I eat I eat meat now. Like, that's mm. like, I allow myself to have a full range of experiences because certain things work for me in different different points in my life. And so I've learned now, like, yeah, I can, I can indulge, I can have meats. But for me, I'd rather have, like, a whole diet of, like, organic meats here and there with, like, you know, complex mm-hmm. carbs mm-hmm. and then indulge in the sweet. But then I also don't really do processed sugar. So that's the other thing yes. you have to ask yourself, like, what works best for your body now? So, like, right now, it's better for me to have, like, low salt and low sugar for my body mm. at this stage in my life versus me being vegan and eating a bunch of carbs because I can't eat the shit. Mm-hmm. So it's like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's true. Yeah, one of my one of my closest friends um, in Atlanta, she had this epiphany recently as well. And she, I think she just turned 50. Um, but she had the same kind of thought where it's like, I've been told or I've been led to believe that detoxing and being vegan or vegetarian is going to be the best thing for us and for the planet and yada 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 and she's tried that and she's like i tried that and i ballooned like Mm. just completely gained it she's like i went i don't even know the name of the program that she was using but pretty much she reincorporated meat and took out Mm. some of the other crap and she lost like 50 pounds Mm. you know within a matter of months and she's like so yeah, those people who talking about be a liquidarian, an airitarian, and all that kind of stuff. She's like, I, I, I'm gonna have to eat a chicken leg. This once is in what a while. works for me. <laughs> yeah, once in a while. Hey, but that's right. yeah, but we do that in every other aspect of our life, right? You're not gonna wear pants that don't fit you because you're trying to prove a point. You're gonna do what or works help, best for you, help, and so. Really, it's like I want people to take the pressure off of themselves to feel like they have to belong to this ideal that's not realistic, Mm -hmm. especially for black women. It's like we are told, you know, especially growing up, child of the 80s, like all we had were like the white supermodels to look up to, you know, and Naomi came and then Tyra came and that was pretty much in Veronica Webb. Mm -hmm. You can name every black. That was it. You you named them. (laughs) Yeah, and so, and then, of course, Iman, but she was, was like, you know, G. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, Iman and Beverly Johnson were, like, before, but, yes. like, that era, the 90s, like, yeah, the next yeah. door girl was definitely those women. And even then, you were like, yeah, they are anomalies, because yeah. most yeah. black women we know don't look like that. Right. And so what does that say about us and our bodies and how we are viewed as beautiful or not? Mm-hmm. 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 Even I look at Beyonce, like, people get you know, down on themselves for gaining weight, you know, during pregnancy or having difficult pregnancies. Whatever. I'm like, if Beyonce was not famous, she would not weigh what she has to work. She's to an entire team. <laughs> that weight yes. that she's at because she, her body is like, no, we are a good 15 pounds heavier than this just naturally. 
Listen, my 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 weight idol, like low key, and for for dysfunctional reasons, was Janet Jackson. Because Janet was like, when I'm not working, I'm fat. Okay, she's for real and about when, it. She said it. And when I come back, I'll be snatched, and y'all will gag, and we will be fine. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, it's fine, it's okay. It's like because you know. It's like you you give yourself that space. Like you yes. work so hard and you train so hard. You know, you got an album coming out, Janet Jackson, you're going on tour. And then when you go home, you're going to chill out. And that's real life, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that when you give yourself that grace, it takes the pressure off yourself to, to live up to a standard that you wasn't even really trying to accomplish, but you feel like you should because that's what everybody says. And it's mm-hmm. like, that's, that's over. That's over. Yes. Thank you very much. But this is, this is a great introduction. <laughs> so I know we started to touch on, it, touch on it a little bit already, but in your opinion, what makes a diet unhealthy? Yeah. So people ask me, like, what diet do you like and, and all that stuff? And I think a diet that makes you feel as though you are punishing yourself is not a good diet. And I feel like a lot of times we take that on as like a badge of honor. Like I ate seven almonds today and like two egg whites and you know, I'm loving it. And it's like, no, you're not. Like, I'd rather you be like, look, I don't want to, I don't want to do this shit. I hate dieting. I have, you know, I've worked with personal trainers and I tell them even new trainers. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to remember the names of any of these exercises. Cause I don't want to be here. So you tell me like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I have no muscle. I'm not going to remember. I'll know how to do them. But like, when you're like, go over there and do that. I'm like, what? Show it to me. Cause I am not retaining any of this information. And I know that about myself, but I'm going to get it done. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that's, you got to be like, yeah, I'm on this diet. I don't want to be on this diet. I'm on this diet because I have a goal. And then once I reach that goal, this is the key part. Once you reach your goal, you need to learn how to maintain. And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that we don't have a real conversation about, yes. which is maintaining. So, like, I feel like a diet could be a shock to the system to get you back on track where you do deprive yourself of certain things because you have a goal that you want to reach. But it's the maintenance. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, I'm all about, like, the maintenance. And I think that's the larger conversation we should have because nobody talks about, like, how to allow certain things in your diet, your daily diet, without feeling like you need to be punished or penalized or, like, flawed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I it's that lifestyle it was, switch. I feel like it was Tony Horton. I think Tony Horton is the one who said, like, what you do to gain, not meaning gain weight, but gain, get your goal, is what you need to do to maintain. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. people, like you're saying, people do these really intense diets, the seven almonds and the, and the egg whites, <laughs> and you know you're not finna eat like that forever. You know as soon as you get to your goal, you're trying to put that down. But what you did to get there is what you need to do to stay there. So you need to find a way to get there that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also, once you, once you do have a, when you make a lifestyle change, especially when it comes to how you eat, like your friend did, you will lose the weight because our bodies tell us, and that's the biggest thing about diets or diet culture is like most people don't innately listen to their bodies Mm -hmm. and your bodies tell you everything and you can even track it down and be like, okay, I felt like this. Now, what did I do yesterday? What did I eat? But we're so in the motions, you know, you know, if you're eating your lunch at your work desk, you're not really paying attention to what you, what was in your food because you ordered it and you was hungry. You had 10 minutes before another zoom meeting. And it's like, we just need to slow down. And I think, 
I think the pandemic helped that a lot because people were like, let me see, what am I doing to myself? Mm. Like, let me start treating myself better. This is also why people are like, I'm not going back to work for no $7.25. Like, <laughs> yes, I've, been home, I've been home making banana bread. Like, I might as well just sell this fucking banana bread and go into business for myself. <laughs> yep. Then, you know, so I think that we are checking in with ourselves more. But, you know, diet culture has always been about, like, sacrifice for a goal. But we don't really talk about maintaining that goal when the truth of the matter is the food that we have access to is shitty. Mm -hmm. Like, it's America, but the food that most Americans eat is trash. Trash. So that's the real question. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep, 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 yep. So speaking of America, (laughs) when writing your book... Who was the audience? Um, I, I I didn't even think about like who the audience was because I'm a stand-up comedian and I know when I write my jokes, I write them because these are things that I want to say or opinions that I have or experiences that I've gone through. And so for me, it's about telling my story or my observation and making it funny, which is really just like thinking about it from a skewed point of view, which is like an yeah. analytical observational, why, like, why are we here? Meta, meta type thing. Yeah. And that's just my personality. That's who I am as a journalist is like, well, why, why do I think, what are my hypothetical reasons? And I've seen people hear my opinions and construe them vastly different than what my intent was. And also look at me on stage as a black woman and think before I open my mouth, oh, I'm not going to have anything in common with her. So, Mm. you know, I'll listen, but I want to identify. And then I've had people who thought they would like me and they didn't like me. And so from stand-up comedy, I, I know that I can present what I can present, but I have no control over how people view it yes. or receive it. Sure. And so when I wrote this book, I had to write it for me about what I wanted to know. Like it, when I was a kid, what would I have loved to have known about my school lunch? What would I have loved to know about the complications of dating or understanding that most teens in America deal with domestic partner abuse, you know? So even in high school, kids, mm. so like the shit, so to know that, basically to know that I wasn't alone in my experiences. I wasn't alone in being told, eat all your food because there's starving kids in Africa. I wasn't alone oh my in God. being... <laughs> Did I just give you a flashback? <laughs> oh, yeah, eat your food. They don't have no food. There. And see, I'm like, don't well, you see Sally Struthers on the TV with the damn rock your way to diet thing with the belly or, out children helping right? eat your food? <laughs> or you could send them some of this beef liver. I don't want this beef liver, Grandma. <laughs> I don't want this shit anyway. Right? That's they like hilarious. grits in Kenya? Send it over there. I don't need it. <laughs> you want like grits? No, <laughs> not beef liver with oh, gravy no. and onions. Like, when you you know, you know the struggle meals our, yeah. our parents gave us yeah, yeah. In, honor, in honor of the ancestors <laughs> that paved the way for us to live in Brooklyn because they came from South Carolina. <laughs> Yo, when I, I don't know, one t- is in college when I realized liver and onions wasn't the thing to be doing. It wasn't before that, but I was like, yeah, wait, we ate an organ? We was eating an organ yes. in Israel. Oh, okay. I yeah. was lucky well, to not be of the Southern kind of family who made chitlins. Like, I don't, I'm sure there are some, some break off cousins and stuff who do chitlins, but I was lucky that that was not mm. 
a thing. Yes, chitlins were not a thing, but I think every once in a while, like maybe every year or two, they would do it for like New Year's. It was like a New Year's thing. Uh -huh. That was when they would do it. If they did it, it was like a New Year's thing. I never, my mom and not like our, our little pod in the family, we never <laughs> ate chitlins. And my mother, I think my mother told me, she was like, she told her mother, she was like, do not feed my child chitlins. Like, I think that was <laughs> one of the things. Like that's that's where we draw the line, Mama. Yes. It's true. It's true. It's so true. Big Mama will understand. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, how do you think Black folks, or how did Black folks receive you when you said that you were gonna be eating for your body, for your blood type? Mm -hmm. Oh well, uh, you know, even now in my family, I, they still look at me like, you know, that's Chloe. She's just gonna be. That's just that we love her anyway. You know, I'm. <laughs> I am the, oh, uh, bring paper plates to the family function. Like, I'm that person because I would try to bring, like, healthy foods. And they'd be like, listen, <laughs> not now, not today. Not today. We wanted to have, like, we, we trying to have fun. Yes. Yeah, like, literally, you yes. know. But there was little things that I started early. Like, I was always... I was always essentially a disruptor when it came to food in my family mm. because when I stopped eating red meat, I was 12 or 13 and then I remember my mom t testing me to see if I was for real and I failed that first test because I woke up one Saturday and she made like the biggest plate of bacon I've ever seen in my life and I was like I, I have to have a piece of bacon mm -hmm. and then after that I was like no I'm for real like I doubled <laughs> down and so when I really doubled down then they started doing things like not putting the pork and the collard greens or like making me a little side plate you know mm -hmm. a side pot of greens to uh, to respect that I had made this choice and that's what I am so grateful about my parents it's like they respected my choice for myself and then they would accommodate me as best as possible. And I think that's how they feel about me now. It doesn't necessarily influence them when it comes to their eating, but like when I'm around them, I can see them being like, okay, I won't get this thing, I'll get this thing. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, you know, it's changed now because more people talk about eating healthy and mm -hmm. now you have like soul vegans and like yes. all these people who make it yes. cool and yes. all these restaurants and the black communities and that's great. But when it was before that, it was like, oh, you're joining a cult. You're going to a commune. You shopping at a co-op. What's a co-op? You mean a supermarket a is a cult. Yeah. And it's like, what's a co What's a food co-op? Mm -hmm. You know, laying there, they don't shave their armpits in there. They, you know, white people got dreads in there. <laughs> it's, really you know? it's true, though. It's true. Yeah. But, you know, so to them, it was like I was, I. it came across like I was too good for our culture, our food culture. And, you know, in the African-American community, mm -hmm. food is our currency. Yes. It is our love language. It is what we bestow to our aunt, to our descendants, yes. recipes and you know, moments over meals. And, you know, we may not have stocks and bonds, but like we bond over the dinner table. Like we truly cherish those moments. And to have someone like me being like, oh, grandma, I don't want your ham. They're like, get this bent out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a similar story. First, I want to say, I feel like we still haven't perfected the vegan mac and cheese. I'm still waiting on somebody uh, to actually really, really get that together. Yeah. Even yeah. my children, like sometimes I can trick them. We just had some impossible chicken nuggets. And I was like, oh, these are better than real chicken nuggets. I could do this all the they time. Actually, actually, well, I didn't have any actually. You did. You did. No, you did. I didn't. Okay. They had them. I have them. And the, the mac and cheese, I tried it. I tried it with the chow cheese. I tried it with the diet. I said, listen, I, I, in my 
my kids are like, this don't taste good. It's missing the death, mama. Like, I don't taste the death of this. <laughs> I just don't taste it. This ain't it. Yeah, mac and cheese is tough. Mac yeah. and cheese is tough. That's that's why, like, even when I was vegan, when I had moments of being vegan, um, I always, like, Thanksgiving is my, that's my gimme day. Like, mm-hmm. I'm getting me some mac and cheese. I'm mm-hmm. getting me some turkey. I'm getting me some dressing, mm-hmm. gravy, all of that. Like, that is my allowance. And we'll just and deal with it. We'll just deal with yeah, it for the next day. We'll just deal with it. And it's and joyous. It all... It's an experience. Mm-hmm. You allow yourself to just relax yes. and lean into mm-hmm. the, the, yes, the flavors. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. And so, you know, I don't ever want to make people feel bad about how they choose to eat. And I, I'm grateful that my family tolerated me as much as they could, you know, especially mm-hmm. since it wasn't, it wasn't like we were rich. It wasn't like they were going to go out and give me my own refrigerator. And like, you know, they made <laughs> yeah. do with what they could. But I think everybody has to go on that journey for themselves because you got to be the one that has to live with your body. And mm-hmm. that's, that's my biggest thing. It's like, it's not even for me. It's not even about, it's partially about like the planet, of course, and animals a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. a little, tiny bit. I'm just not, a little because I'm still wearing leather. Like I'm just. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it's kind of all or nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I came back in this life as a human. So I'm grateful for that. When I come back as a cow, maybe I'll be like, niggas be vegan. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, Eat more chicken. <laughs> Yeah, right. You want chicken. Uh, everybody has their own agenda, basically, right. depending on where you stand in life. But you know, I think a lot of times we we just don't understand that it's for me. It's really about the health. And I think when COVID hit, it drew the point home even more so for me because we started hearing about pre-existing conditions, which is really conditions that happen to people after a long time effect of a bad diet in America. Like truly, that's what, like when you think about breaking down those things, it's like arthritis, hypertension, high blood pressure, heart failure, all of these things that you can really associate with like your diet diet and exercise or lack thereof. And I got to the point where I was like, yo, I don't want to be old and decrepit. Also, I don't have kids. I don't have anybody who's instantly going to take care of me. So I got to make sure that I take care of myself. So Mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff for me is like, I just want to be healthy. I don't want to be walking around with aches and pains and and limiting my life experience because I'm not physically able to do certain things. And so I was like, if I got to eat healthy, then that's just what I have to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. There's so many things we're not saying here because we can just go on and on and on. Like you're speaking to the tribe. Uh, We start, we start, you got that book um, you know, uh, eating for your blood type like 10 years ago. I don't even know if I yeah. still have it. I probably, I don't, we, probably, we probably gave it away. <laughs> but like there's so many attempts to figure out what's going on in here. There's so much information mm-hmm. and like a bunch of, you know, the now they're hotep, but there was brothers and sisters who are in the health food industry years ago telling us this stuff. Mm-hmm. You listen to BAI in New York, right? Mm-hmm. The LIB yeah. and all that stuff. And, and Gary no, he, he white, but he had brother, right? But, <laughs> but like all this stuff, and you're the weird one for listening to that stuff. But when you try the little things, Reiki and all that yeah. stuff was around, it's like, you did what? Now y'all are weird. You know, no, I'm just telling you what the ancestors was doing. Like before <laughs> yeah. the slavery ancestors. Speaking you know of that, I mean? we li- Sorry, yeah. I hit the table. You can't hit the table. Can't hit the table. <laughs> it, it resonates in the mic. You know, you know all of that Oh, stuff. yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we lived in Atlanta for a while. And we were at the register. And at Publix, and we have bought a bunch of um, organic um, fruits and vegetables. You're not gonna make fun of her. I'm trying. I'm gonna try not to make fun of her, but it's it's bubbling. It's bubbling. Um, <laughs> the cashier was like, 
what's the big what's the big deal with all this organic stuff and i was like well you know it's not genetically modified and you know it's, it wasn't grown in a lab and hopefully they didn't use the the worst of the herbicides and pesticides on it so you know it should be a little bit healthier she was like i don't know my great my grandma lived to be such and such years old and she ain't never ate no organic and i'm like because sis Everything she ate was organic was at organic. the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but message. She also pronounced fruits wrong. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't we just left it alone. I just had to leave it alone because yeah. I'm like, you're not gonna be able to understand what I'm saying. So I'm just Listen, gonna leave this alone. I I was in Atlanta and my friend from college, I went to visit my friend from college. She was from there. And she took me to like Bojangles or something, you know, one of those yeah, like, oh you yeah, gotta yeah. try. Yes. And so I, she orders her food. I go up, I order my food. And the woman talks to me and I can't understand her. Yep. Because her accent was so thick. And I just heard her saying to me, like, hey, Tony, we need some quarters. And I said, excuse me? And she looked at me and she repeated herself. And I, I just had to say in a moment, I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm hard of hearing. I, it was me. It wasn't you. <laughs> <laughs> it's my fault. It's my fault. I just, this little one ear is a little wonky. Because she, like, because everybody looked at me like, what do you mean you don't understand her? Mm-hmm. And I could not, the accent was so thick, I did not understand what she was saying. My friend just laughed at me. But Atlanta, they got some accents in there. Yes, I mean, I'm saying this as a New Yorker. We yes, just talk about have accents. Accent. Yeah. Oh, my God. But it's that kind of, it's just that kind of oh thinking. God. Like, it's the same kind of, she shares the thinking of, like, my, our parents and grandparents. Like, what, you don't need this organic, this organic. It's like, okay, because you had real food. We no longer, you didn't even realize our grandparents and parents were so excited when box cereal and chef boyardee in a can came out they was like oh i can feed my children on 25 cents let's just you know what i mean they mm-hmm. weren't thinking about this is made in a lab they were not thinking about that yeah so when we yeah. say oh i'm trying to i'm i'm eating organic i'm making sure that it's you know farm to table mm-hmm. like, what you need all that for because that's what y'all yeah. had I get yeah. that. You're like, why do you, why do you, why do you want to be difficult? And yes. it's like, I'm not trying to be difficult. Why are you making it harder for yourself? It's like, I'm because in the end, it really mm-hmm. comes back to bite you in the ass. Yes, yes for sure, for sure. Literally. So speaking of that, because this is all coming down to money, like, what do you think is the main socioeconomical mm-hmm. issue um, when it pertains to eating healthy? And and so you know, America for all intents and purposes, it's supposed to be a first world country, right? It's not. The but pandemic we, told us that it was not. It's not. It's not. It's not. It was like, it was like we were living in the Truman Show. Like, the yes. black people kind of was like, you know, this is a Truman Show. White people was like, no, it's not. And everybody was like, yeah, this is a Truman Show. Yeah. Um, we all realized that we've been had. And I think the biggest thing and the reason why we have to stop associating bad eating with, like, just the hood is that there's food deserts and food swamps all across America. And as a comedian, I was traveling a lot. I I visited most of the 50 states and I spent a lot of time in middle America Mm -hmm. and they lack so many food options. Mm -hmm. It's sad. Like I walked into, uh, I was in North Dakota and I, I think I just wanted like, pineapple juice or it was like either pineapple juice or mango juice it was something that i just was like craving like oh i just want this like fruit juice and they were like oh no we don't have that here and i remember asking for like fruit and they were like oh we have canned fruit like fruit cocktail and i'm like no i want fresh fruit i just want fresh fruit 
And they were like, oh no, you're not gonna get that. And so I was at a college performing and one of the students who was Native American, he was like, yeah, we don't really get a lot of good produce, produce here because it takes so long for it to get here, it's bad. So we really just eat a lot of canned stuff. Mm-hmm. And when you hear that, when you hear a person, especially in middle America say that, or in a white community say that, even though he was Native American, it's like North Dakota is mostly white people. They're saying that from a point of like, well, out here where we live, we live so far, or it's hard for these things to get to us. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking about like, we deserve to mm-hmm. have these things, you know, and no amount of money that they have doesn't get it to them because of infrastructure. Yes. Whereas when you think about the black and brown community, we're looked at not having it because of poverty. Like we don't work hard enough to earn these things, but they're both accessible and inaccessible to us as black and brown people in the in the community in big cities and white people in middle America. Yeah, we both have the same limited resources when it comes to healthy, hold and affordable food. And that's a capitalism thing. And so I think people need to understand that you deserve to have fresh fruits and vegetables and you shouldn't be charged an arm and a leg for them because they grow it here. Like a lot Literally. of stuff is grown here and subsidized by the government, you know? And so when people realize that they should have these things that should be basic human rights, that's when the conversation will change versus well, make more money and then buy the food you want. And that shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. Correct. I think that that's really interesting that you said that because <laughs> we're spoiled being New Yorkers because it's a coastal city, right? It's mm-hmm. a hub of where so many people from so many continents come together. And so some of the things that we are have been exposed to at the corner store or at the fruit stand is stuff that's been imported that we don't even think about how long it took to get here. It came on here with the rest of y'all. Like y'all all came mm-hmm. in on the same <clears throat> aircraft boat or whatever. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but yeah, I think about that all the time. Whenever we think about moving to a new place, I'm like, do they have Sasson? Mm-hmm. Because oh, okay. listen, uh, listen, my family has to send me a uh, adobo cause they don't Oh no, I can adobo. tell you where it is. I found it. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> I did stop buying Goya products after they, um, endorsed mm. Trump, but <laughs> yes. I can still tell you where to get it. <laughs> good. Thank you. All right, tell us how you came up with that crazy cover. We love it. <laughs> oh, okay, so so the cover again that that serves two purposes. One, um, it's like my mini uh, tribute to Janet Jackson. So I kind of recreate. If you kind of see it closely, I don't do the some opposing the back may have the the arms mm-hmm. over her head from mm-hmm. the Janet album. Yes, but the bra with the jeans undone, and I have like <laughs> you know the little keychain, but it's made of like jelly rings. <laughs> Um, and so I wanted to incorporate food into the look, of course, because it's about food and diet. And I wanted to look kind of glamorous. So I was thinking of like uh, Diana Ross, big Afro, big eyes, you know, mm-hmm. so that's like the makeup glam um, inspiration. And I had shown a reference to the art director of um, of Diana Ross with a big Afro and big eyelashes in like the 70s. And I was like, can we do something like this? And then maybe like a Cleopatra, like blunt wig, Mm -hmm. but like maybe make it food. Like what if the wig is licorice and then like the hair is a popcorn Afro? And they were like, cool. And so (laughs) that was it. It wasn't even like a back and forth and nobody had to approve it. It was like, okay, sure. We'll just hire a food stylist and 
I measured my head and he built the wig of like that's real popcorn that he hot glued on like kernel by kernel. The licorice, the licorice wig. It's like licorice, just like a legit attached to like from like a base that he a mold that's attached to a mold. It's like he made it from scratch. And I brought two bras from Walmart when I was like in the middle of America performing (laughs) somewhere and got me two bras and I sent them in and they just like added the popcorn and licorice. And so it was important for me to have my body show, um, not in a gratuitous way, but in a natural way. If I was a thinner fit shaped woman, this pose wouldn't be controversial at all. But for me to show my stomach in this natural state was important for me because my stomach, especially if you look at the back cover, um, you can see my stomach and it's not flat and it's not perfect. And you see my stretch marks and and I actually told them I don't didn't want anything photo touched uh, touched up. So the stretch marks are there. Everything is there. So of course we had to stalk your social media and all your stuff to get prepared for this interview. So we know that on page eighty nine of your book you introduce us to a whole new side of Frosted Flakes <laughs> and Jeff Ke- and John Kellogg himself. And how did you research that? <laughs> how did you even come to think to research that? And I, oh. I'm, I think I will forever be scarred knowing that Frosted Flakes had anything to do with masturbation. Like, oh, it was cornflakes, cornflakes, oh, okay. cornflakes, um, <laughs> cornflakes. And so I had heard that. I had heard someone say like, oh, you know, it's like one of those like, uh, like those conversation. Like, did you know? You know, like top um. of a snapple fact. Like if that's how I would hear it. And it was like, yeah. So John. H. Kellogg, the inventor of cornflakes, um, he created it because he had money from other industry and then he was really big on health and fitness and he was a seven-day Adventist. And so seven-day Adventists mm-hmm. at the time were like America's de facto religious fitness gurus because, you know, fitness was close to like health and godliness and mm-hmm. they really were at the forefront of like America's first like health fitness movement. And so he opened up a sanatorium, which is different from a sanitarium. So a sanatorium is where you go to like relax and like, it's like a retreat, but it was for people who had money and who could afford it. So like America's new 1% and like the railroad oil barons. Now Mm -hmm. all these families have all this money and nothing to do. There's no more plantations and farms. And so they're like, what are we going to do? We're going to go to a resort, a retreat. And they would do these like state-of-the-art treatments and they would get dunked in cold water and, you know, electrocuted and sit out in the freezing cold in Michigan and, like, you know, to revive themselves and rejuvenate this. Like, you know, this Mm -hmm. is what they thought. Mm -hmm. Fringe. And so, yeah, and so he thought, um, as a seven-day Adventist, he thought that spicy foods led to sexual perversions and so the blander the diet, the less likely you were to want to fornicate. And so they just himself, always hating on black people every which way they could think about trying it. Yeah, right. They try it. They want season it, and then they don't want seasoning. Um, okay. And so he pushed a bland diet because he thought it was better for the body to not be disrupted and also not to be, you know, pushed to any sexual urges. And so, <laughs> interesting enough, he himself he never consummated his own marriage. He and his wife never had sex. They just adopted like six or seven kids. And for me, as a journalist, that's a part of my nature. It's a job that I have, but it's a part of my nature to always want to dig deep. And so when I hear something like he invented cornflakes to prevent masturbation, I need to know more. And so I just started (laughs) digging around because what's so crazy is we truly um, take people's 
invention of convenience or invention of capitalism and we internalize it as like a tried and true thing, right? And so now all of a sudden, his younger brother took over the cornflake business because John H. Kellogg was obsessed with like the health resort. So he was like, yeah, you can take the cereal, I'll sell it to you. And then the brother turned it into like a profitable thing and added sugar and all a bunch of shit to it. And then kids get addicted. And now it's like breakfast is the most important part of your meal. And it's like, this nigga made this shit so people wouldn't jerk their dicks. And now you're telling kids to eat it every morning. And so <laughs> that whole sentence right there. <laughs> no, but like that, that like that realization is like everything is made up. Like in a pandemic shows you everything is made up. Everything is contrived. Everything is sold and, and pitched to us in a yes. way that makes us feel as though we have to have it. And so like when I say fuck your diet, it's like understand mm-hmm. that the diet that we're taught and told that we need is really truly also linked to someone's pocket. Yes. Like that's truly, remember all of a sudden a couple of years ago, every time you turn on the television, it was a commercial for pistachios. It's like, who got yes. in your pocket? Yep. Because we wasn't thinking about pistachios. Nope. You're right. You're right. It's true. Well, I was wondering why there was so many pistachio commercials. I was like, y'all because, eat them every once in a while, but I don't need another commercial. Pistachio farmers lobbied lobbyists, paid the money, who went to, you know, what, the government FCC and was and like, let's, subsi- let's subsidize pistachios. And then, you know, you push them to the mouth. Like, that's how... The reason why kids to this day get... Um, milk cartons on their lunch with lunch every day is because mm-hmm. the farmers, milk farmers, was losing money when soft drink industry like started popping off in like the seventies, eighties, mm-hmm. and they were losing so much money. And so they went to the government like we're losing money from milk, and the government signed a deal with milk farmers to provide milk for all the schools. That's why they don't care if kids throw it out because they've already paid for it. So they push it on us, like, drink your milk, but it's like, help these farmers with the cows, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, when you think about it that way, you're just like, oh, you'll tell us anything mm-hmm. to get us to consume something for someone's bottom dollar. They mm-hmm. could just play, play, pay black people reparations. We wouldn't have all these right. problems. How you go, we, what are you subsidizing milk for, for decades and upon decades? Bringing decades. It anyway. Nobody. 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 No human beings. None. <sighs> Okay. Thank you. For I love that answer. Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> Schooling them. So I know you mentioned earlier about being bullied. But I did want to say, you. Sa- I saw on um, a blurb in your book where you were talking about how by the age of 12, you were a size 12 in both dress and shoes. I was yes. also a size 12 by age 12. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I was also a size 12 by age 12. I didn't have a size 12 shoe, but... It was definitely like a, a ballooning. It was mm-hmm. just a, I'm a regular sized kid. <laughs> and then? And then. Bow. But that happens a lot. Like, you know, it happened to me early, but now it happens to every child. And you can see it within every child. Like, unless, you know, they're a super active kid. Oh, their parents are really, you know, on it when it comes to like nutrition. But you see it around like age eight or nine. And I talked to a doctor friend of mine and he said that it's true. It's the diet. All of a sudden your body can't fight it off anymore. And Mm -hmm. then you get inflammation. And Mm -hmm. that's when you see kids getting really chunky around like eight, nine, ten, because they start to hit puberty. Their metabolism starts to change. And they've had a diet that consists of processed foods and sugars. And that's the start at that age so then when you get 50 now you got pre-existing conditions and everybody's Mm -hmm. like oh you gotta change your diet it's like you got to retrofit your like it's a whole lifestyle like change but yeah you were talking about being bullied and so how would you say that that affected your eating 
Mm. And what can we do as parents to mm. help our children through something like yeah. that? Yeah. Well, so it's it's twofold. I was definitely bullied by kids in school and they would comment on like my eating or just, you know, of course, like calling you fat and, and nicknames and, and jokes and all that stuff. But it just made me self-conscious about eating in public because they would watch to see like, oh, you ate all your food, you know, like, oh, I bet you're still hungry, that sort of thing. And so mm. I would, not so much in elementary school because as a kid, you're hungry, you know, but I started to develop an eating disorder where I wouldn't eat um, in public or I wouldn't eat all of my food in public. Even if I was hungry, I wouldn't like finish it all, you know, because I didn't want them to be like, oh, she ate everything and she's so greedy. And so then by the time I got to high school, it wasn't, you couldn't, in junior high school, actually junior high school, by the time I got to junior high school, it was no longer okay to eat school lunch. It was right. like, ew, it's, you got ill, you poor. You, you got lunch tickets. Lunch yeah, your parents ain't get you tickets. no money. They ain't give you no money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so but by, by like sixth or seventh grade, the school that I went to um was, you know, a New York City school and it was so overcrowded that they would let like the seventh and eighth graders like leave the building. Mm -hmm. And so if you had money, if you were a sixth grader, you would give a, somebody in the seventh grade money and be like, go to the Chinese store, bring me back some fried rice. And then like, that's what it would be. It would just be like French fries with ketchup or fried yeah. rice with hot sauce. So like four chicken wings for a dollar fifty, mm -hmm. like, and that would be my lunch or a slice of pizza or, you know, I never went to Burger King because the line was too long. <laughs> But like, it was always like pizza, chicken. And I would, if I didn't have money, my friends and I would pull our money together and we would share French fries. But like, that was all I would eat. And so now I'm not eating enough foods. My metabolism starts slowing down. When I do eat healthy, it's, you know, like my body's not burning it because it's like, we don't know when we're going to eat. Cause I was constantly low key starving myself. Yeah. And then by the time I got to high school, it was the same thing. But when I got to high school, it got worse because of course I'm not going to eat school lunch. But I didn't necessarily have money because my parents didn't have money like that to give me money every day. So I would just like have a dollar and get like a candy bar. And then after school, I would play basketball and, and have practice and then damn near pass out on my way home. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of continued because food scarcity, lack of resources, lack of, you know, pride or, you know, not pride, but like just not wanting to be um, shunned or made fun of because I'm eating school lunch. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot that we deal with when it comes to socioeconomics, when it comes to peer pressure and popularity, because you just, you got to want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing damage to my body and creating an unhealthy narrative when it comes to myself and food, because I was just trying to fit in. And that was a result of me being bullied because it was like, I don't want to draw any more attention to myself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you say you got it mostly from boys or girls? What would you Girls, boys yeah. didn't really care. It was girls. I was tormented by young girls, especially in elementary school. They made so much fun of me because I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know. Um, I was, and I also grew up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn, so I wasn't cool. I wasn't hip. I didn't know the lingo. My mom dressed me like a little Jewish kid because the clothes was nice. Like I told you, my parents was bougie. And they was like really <laughs> aspiring bougie. And so I was already a, like, social misfit that way. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was the youngest in the class because my birthday was at the end of the year. This is before they did that September, August cutoff. So mm -hmm. I started school at four. So emotionally, oh, yeah. I'm the least mature, but I'm the physically the biggest kid. And so that was like a mind fuck for kids. They was like, you so big, but why are you crying all the time? Because I'm a fucking baby. Like, I'm a baby. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
This is so much good material. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's true. It's like, you know, because physically I was a larger body naturally, just in stature. And then you add pounds. It made people treat me like I was older and more mature than I was. And that's something especially young black girls have to do a lot of times when it comes to our bodies. And so you add, you know, you add a larger frame to that. So now when I'm 14 and I'm 6'1", because I've been 6'1 since I was 12, Mm. you know, and they're looking at a grown woman body, they're, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it it treats me, it it exposes me to elements that I shouldn't have to deal with because of my body. Yeah, we were talking on the last episode about how we can't wait till they get like, you know how they have um, the wearable cameras for the police that they don't ever turn on. Mm-hmm. I was like, I hope they come out with like cameras and earrings or cameras in like the middle of glasses that we can all afford so that we can start to expose all of the misogyny mm-hmm. and sexual assault and sexual harassment that women face every five minutes. I can't wait till that yeah. starts to blow up just as much as these police videos are starting to blow well, up. What did she do to make him act like that? Well, here, let me pre- allow me, me to press me, play for she you. She was walking. Yeah. 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 She breathed. Yeah, she <laughs> breathed. That's it. That's it. That's, That's it. That's it. So, so we're going to switch gears a little yeah. bit because it yes. can get really heavy. Um, so how did you get into comedy? Mm-hmm. Who, who were your inspirations? Well, I kind of got into comedy in a roundabout way. Mm. I was a journalist for 10 years. I had written and worked at The Source magazine, Vibe. I was an editor, managing editor, and worked at the Village Voice newspaper. Yes. So I was like tried and true, like I'm a journalist. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I had a, a reporter's pad, you know, you keep a quarter in case you had to make a phone call in case your phone died. I had, you know, you had to write when your notepad and a, pen, a pencil because when it's cold outside, a pen, the ink won't, you know, like yep. this is like reporter, reporter. Yes. <laughs> and, and then uh, the, the kind of like right before social media, like social media was kind of picking up. And then it became all about like aggregation. I hate that word to this day. It came about, if you worked in media, in the early 2000s, it was all about aggregation, AKA stealing other people's content and reposting it for clicks, right? Ooh. And so I went from being a reporter and going out and like being with a subject and like following them for like, you know, weeks, if not months and working on the story to like working for a magazine. And they're like, we want 30 stories a day. We need this many clicks, this many hits. And like, it was a wild, wild west. Like nobody really understood what went viral, but everybody was like, just as much as more, it's about excess and many things you can get up. And it really kind of like killed journalism for me. And so the last thing I hadn't done in journalism was on air talent. Like I hadn't been in broadcast. I'd done radio, I've done newspaper, magazine, but I hadn't done television. And so I decided to take a stand-up comedy class because I really wanted to just get a presence in front of people. And I'm a great public speaker. I've, you know, done plays and all that stuff, you know, as a kid growing up, but I really wanted to be able to be in the moment, think on my feet fast, like say something funny and witty and like, you know, interview people as a journalist. And so I took the class for that reason. Mm. And at the end of the class, you had a graduation show and you had to do five minutes of material. And I ended up going up last because I had the most people and they didn't want them to leave if I went up early. So I was like, <laughs> <"Headliner."> <laughs> 
like it was a trick. It was like, oh, you 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 know, you brought the most people. You gonna close the show out? Like if you if you dumb, you be like, wow, really? He's like then I was like, no, I gotta sit here and wait and yeah. go last. <laughs> and so, um, I was so nervous, and I didn't even really tell people that I took a class. You know, some of my close friends, but I everybody was like, I'm coming. Like I gotta see this show, and I was so nervous that I had. Uh, I couldn't take the mic out of the mic stand. I couldn't hold the mic because my hands were shaking too much. And then I put like a cheat sheet. I wrote like my little punch line, like keywords on like the, the fatty part of my thumb, you know, that little fatty, like that part. <laughs> and and I would look down and be like, okay, that's the next joke. Cause I was like, so like frazzled. And at the end of that show, like my friends and family were like, so you are so good. When's the next show? And I was like, I did not plan on doing this again. Like this was be a one-time thing. And people were like, no, you got to keep going. You got to keep going. So I would do like what they call bringer shows, which is like if you bring people, you get to like perform on a show. Got it. And so I did that for a while. And um, and then I started liking it. And then I just got so burnt out with journalism because it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And I had to like really come to terms with like, this was the dream that I've always wanted my whole life. When I was a young girl, I was like, I'm going to be, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning. Yeah. And I just said, you know, well, I, I'm kind of having fun with this thing over here. So let me see where it goes. And then three years after I started, I was like a semifinalist on Last Comic Stand-In on national TV. Oh. And then I started like performing all over the country. And then it was 10 years later. Now it's 11 years now, going on 12, that I've been doing stand-up. Yeah. I'm going I'm I'm to I'm I'm put, I'm gonna say 10 because the pandemic minus, you know, that's yes. a, little, a little asterisk. But yeah. Yeah. So over, over a decade, <laughs> over a decade wow. of stand-up. And it's... It's taken me all over the country. It's really opened my eyes and given me a different perspective. You know, coming from Brooklyn, New York, you think that's like, you know, the gem of the world and you go and you see how other people live. So it really set me on a path that I'm grateful for. That was wonderful. I like it. What are you, I, this is complete. I'm just adding questions now. Yeah, it's not on the list. I know it's not on the list. We almost done. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the newer comics like the Kevin Sages and, and his crew and how they are very careful with their comedy. They're still very funny, but they're not, they're there. You can tell that they're making sure not to offend versus mm-hmm. like veterans like Dave Chappelle and that whole situation or even old school, you know, Martin or um, Richard Pryor, Red Fox, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Because we tried to yeah. watch. Oh, we watched Run Tell That. No, You So Crazy. I tried to watch a Martin. We tried to watch You So Crazy up, like a like, month ago, and we have like current day political yes. correctness. So it was mad cringe. I was like, I can't do the this. The first like six minutes, we was like, yo, he had all. The- yeah. yeah. It was like, oh, but shit. it's funny it's- because like I'll watch Raw. And I won't have that same visceral reaction to Eddie Murphy saying the craziest shit. But I don't know. There was something purely comical about his saying it versus when I hear Martin saying it. It felt like an attack Mm. in some way. Yeah. Yeah. But my question is about newer people who are definitely being comedic, but respectfully, and then others who are like, I'm offend whoever the fuck I want to offend. I think, I think, um, well, for when it comes to Kevin stage specifically, he was always a clean comic, right? Mm -hmm. So he he has a Christian background. And what works so well for him is that when you approach comedy from a clean standpoint, uh, clean, not necessarily, he was a Christian comic, right? Mm -hmm. And then he's clean. 
which means which gives you a little bit more leeway in, in, in the form of like subject matter right mm -hmm. you can be a little bit salacious it's more innuendo or whatever mm -hmm. as long as you're not like you know super super like off offensive mm -hmm. but what works so well is that when you're a clean comic it translates so smoothly for social media and so that's why it was able for it was mm -hmm. it was easy for him and comics like him to resonate with a larger audience because they're not offensive and it plays well with social media. And especially now that everybody is just repeating what you did and like mimicking your, your stuff. Like it just, it's, it just travels well, you know, it, it packages well. And when you think about like club comedians, like comedians like a Dave Chappelle, who was like, I'm going to try and get this audience to hate my guts. And then I'm going to turn it around and win them back in the end and be the victor of the night. That doesn't translate well to social media because the long journey of mm -hmm. having an audience, losing that audience, getting them to agree with you, and then leaving out to like a standing ovation mm -hmm. is all about context and timing. And mm -hmm. so you can't chop that down into 30 second or one minute clips. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you can't cut it down, people hear something, and this is not me. Um, defending or, or making an excuse mm -hmm. for Dave Chappelle and like the, you know, heat that he justifiably Understood. is getting. But it makes people go, this person in totality is trash because this 30 second clip, it, it offended me and my homegirls. And it's just like, were you missing the whole point? This is actually mm -hmm. him defending y'all, but this is the part where he said what was said that was offense. You know, so it's like, mm -hmm. if you don't see the whole picture, it's really easy to dissect and be like, oh, dismissing that person because mm -hmm. of one thing you saw. And so that's why I'm glad that I don't have to rely on social media like that for my comedy career as much anymore because now I could create and write the things that I want to do from a comedic standpoint as a producer and develop them and pitch the shows and do the movies that I want to do mm -hmm. so that I don't have to just wait for someone to see my stand-up and be like, we want to work with her. It's like, mm -hmm. I'll work with myself. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll just make something happen myself and be independent until somebody want to give me some money. Got it. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to frame it because if people aren't paying attention, they're just going off their initial emotional reaction to what this person said. And how that mm -hmm. person was offending this group, and how I'm an ally for this group, mm -hmm. so that means I have to be against you. And I don't, I don't, I don't even want to spend the time to hear the whole thing and go on the journey because my mm -hmm. friend said they was canceled. So mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I mean, so social media is a gift and a curse. It really, it uh -huh. gives everybody a platform, and it also gives everybody a platform. Mm -hmm. It's a curse right now. Like mm -hmm. it's a curse right now. <laughs> <laughs> when y'all get together and try to overthrow the government over some bullshit lies now there's real reasons to be oh, yeah. mad <laughs> for sure there's real for reasons sure. to storm the capital but okay that, that, one, that, one, that one that wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> alright so before we end what I mean, it's January it's 2022 it's actually starting to look like 2020 also which is pissing me off but <laughs> we here now this we is what now. it is we, we asked 2022 not to come in here all crazy but it's still coming in here crazy so <laughs> Agreed. What are your suggestions for healthy weight-related goals and resolutions? Be realistic. And so for me, 
I understand that it's not just diet, it's diet and exercise. Like I can eat as well as I want to, but if I'm not physically active, it's really no point. And then I also kind of like barter with myself. And so in order for me to successfully maintain my weight, I have to have checks and balances. And so my personal experiences is I'll eat as healthy as possible, as healthy as I can afford. That's also key. Monday through Friday. And and on the weekends, I'll have a meal. I'll order like a dinner from a takeout place that I really want to eat from a meal, you know, whatever cuisine I'm tasting that weekend. And I'll also do like a treat, like a sweet treat. And I also tell myself if I do indulge during the week, I have to work out. And I work out anyway, but it's like if I eat something, I know the next morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk five miles. So I walk mm. a lot, especially now living in California. It's so easy for me to walk. And so I walk probably four to five days a week, about four to five miles. Mm -hmm. And then I go hiking on the weekends and I started, you know, weight training. And so for me, it's like I have to do those things if I want to be guilt-free about eating ice cream or having a cookie or a cupcake. And that is just the, that's just the balance. It's not a, it's not a consequence. It's not a punishment. It's like, yeah, you ate a cookie. And so you're going to walk in the morning and it's like, yeah, I am. And I'm going to be fine with it. And I'm going to be happy with the results and I'm going to feel good and have a clear head and use that hour to start my day and get my energy right. And so it doesn't feel like a punishment. It feels like that's just like, the natural flow of my life, you mm -hmm. know? And so I feel like people should give themselves that leeway to have that treat, to have that indulgence, but also hold yourself accountable because, and this is like my, this was the thing that kind of like made it all click for me. Cause I've always eaten well and worked out and lost weight and gained weight and lost weight and gained weight. You know, I told you about Janet Jackson. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and, um, and for me, I told myself, every time I let myself off the hook, every time I let myself fall, every time I let myself, you know, gain weight and stop exercising or fall off my routine, I fail myself. And if I ever met anybody who treated me or let me get away with the things that I do to myself, right? If, yeah. I, if I met somebody who came into my life and flaked on me the way I flaked on me and, you know, made excuses the way I made, like, I would not want that person in my life. And so if I wouldn't accept that from someone else, why should I accept it for myself? And so that was kind of like the aha moment for myself. It's like, I'm not going to beat myself down and not pick myself up, you know? And so that is the way in which, you know, I just crank through my life each day. It's like, yes, this happened, but this is the flip side of it. Yes, you chose to do this and this is the consequences and you got to deal with it because you agree. <laughs> if you eat in this pizza, bitch, you got to get up <laughs> and walk. <laughs> like, that's just what it is. That That's very well said because uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone, anybody put it that way. If you wouldn't let somebody else do it to you, why are you doing it to yeah. you? Why would you do about, it? About, and then look yourself food. in the mirror. Yes, about food. About food, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> everybody knows where to find us. Please tell the people where they can find you, where they can get your book, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Yes. Okay, so you can check me out on fyourdiet.com for more information about my book. On um, social media, it is Chloe underscore Hilliard. Chloe underscore Hilliard, H-I-L-L-I-A-R-D. Chloe spelled with the C the correct way. Um, <laughs> on <laughs> um, All the shade. <laughs> on, on Instagram and Twitter. And you can catch my musings there. I'm on Instagram more than Twitter. 
Um, cause Twitter don't love me like that. Like I'll post something on Twitter and nobody cares and I'll take the same thing and put it on Instagram and it gets a lot of likes. So, okay, uh, okay. Twitter, you know, we just, we just there. With yeah. Yeah. Of course. Presence. Yeah. <laughs> what about shows? Are Ooh, you doing yeah. any comedy shows? Yes. Out? Um, I'll be performing, uh, later in the year. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for COVID to go down. Listen, I'm waiting for COVID to chill. There is no reason why I need to be in any space with folks who don't think it's real. Cause that's the thing is like, when you go out on the road, you don't know who's going to show up to your show. And so that was the thing that really made me, um, think about comedy in a different way when Trump was in office, because, you know, now I would say things and people would give me a different reaction. And then I'm like, why am I getting this reaction or you know if i mentioned anything political you could just feel the energy in the room change and so at that point i was like i have to be more mindful about the spaces that i go to mm. and i still feel that way now but now it's COVID, you know mm-hmm. because you could be somewhere where they don't have any pro- protocols or everybody's using the same microphone and we talk on and spit on those mics you know mm-hmm. and then you know mm-hmm. where's the lysol i need to spray this down like mm-hmm. so I'm going to wait and to, to see what this next wave is looking like. But by summertime, yes, I will definitely be back out here in these comedy streets. Love nice. it. And we're nice. going to have to, like, do lunch or something and hang out yeah, since you're here now. Kick it. Without them kids. Go for a walk. <laughs> yes, yes. Most deaf. Well, it's wonderful having you on. Um, and we Thank hope you. to see you around soon on IG and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here on the Black Spark. And you guys are great. Oh, thank you thank so much. You.